Well, most people these days understand the power they have to affect their own future. What I mean is your fate is not a foregone conclusion. You get it, right? If you move, if you exercise, if you stay active, you know you are giving yourself the best chance of maximizing the good days in your life and minimizing the bad. But there's still one area that needs our attention, one that we all too often overlook and ignore to our own peril. Hi, everyone. Along with Mark Middleton, I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. Thank you, Mr. Schaefer, and I believe that you're closing in on something that we all really need to understand, because just as important as our physical health is to our overall well-being, so is our mental health. And on today's program, we're going to offer you some ways to improve the quality of your life, the quality of your relationships, and your level of social engagement. Uh, As you folks probably know, because everybody's talking about it, there is an epidemic of loneliness out there. It has the potential to get worse and worse as we age if we don't do something about it. And Doro Bush Cook is out there to try to do something about it. Not only is she a fascinating guest, get this, she's also the only person ever to be the daughter of one U.S. president and the sister of another. And she'll be joined by her sister-in-law, Tricia Riley Cook, who will explain co-mindfulness and how it can help you and your significant other. But first, all of this isolation uh, that we've been going through lately as a result of the pandemic, is there a price that we're going to pay for it? Well, there probably is unless we do something about it. We're going to give you some surprising answers from journalist and author Lydia Denworth. We've got ordinary people living extraordinary lives right now on Growing Boulder. guys hang out with us at all, you know uh, that we believe that more is possible as we age, that growing older isn't something that we should dread, that it is in fact a blessing that should be celebrated. Unfortunately, the nearly limitless opportunities of growing older aren't just handed to us. Uh, They're the result of conscious lifestyle choices. We've got to stay active. We've got to eat a healthy diet. Uh, We have to engage in stress-reducing mindfulness activities. And we've got to have a sense of purpose, a reason to get up each and every day. We need new experiences and adventures to get us excited. And maybe, most important of all, uh, we need friendship. Multiple studies have all concluded that as we age, low socialization is more harmful to our health uh, than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, At Growing Boulder, we say that community is immunity, uh, and in a very real way, friendship is the active uh, longevity vaccine. And, you know, there may be nobody that knows more about that than Lydia Denworth. She is a science journalist uh, who has written for the Scientific American, the Atlantic, the New York Times, and many, many more. Uh, She's also the author of a fascinating new book that's called Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. So let's say hello to my new friend, Lydia Denworth. Lydia, how are you doing this morning? Hi there. I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, it, it is interesting that, that that your book came out early this year, just before the pandemic, mm-hmm. and suddenly uh, it was more relevant, more important than ever. How concerned are you uh, about what many people have called an epidemic of loneliness among older people, especially since the pandemic? Are we going to see some long-term health consequences from this? 
I'm afraid that we probably will. Yes. Uh, I have been encouraged by the creativity that people have brought to connecting in whatever way is possible. Uh, but, you know, it, there is there has to be a, a price that we pay for this. There's there's no question about it. And older people who have, you know, a sort of double whammy of one being more susceptible and more, more at risk and so therefore, you know, have been more concerned about staying really, really careful as they should. And secondly, a lot of them are a little bit less savvy with technology, which has been the only way to go. Um, and so I, you know, I hope that um, that people have learned a lot and have sort of tried to figure out how to do that. But um, I worry that the thing is, we won't know, you know, it takes a long time for science to show us exactly what the effects of this kind of thing, like of the loneliness and the isolation would be specifically. But we know from other work and, uh, you know, previous science that that it's just it's never good. I, I do want to talk to you about the science of friendship, but 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 since you mentioned the, you know, the virtual connection that that, mm -hmm. that we have now, uh, could this be one of the silver linings in the pandemic? Uh, I mean, I know telehealth has exploded. Uh, mm -hmm. Older people have been forced, uh, in many cases, to use Zoom and uh, and and FaceTime, uh, you know, to connect with people. Mm -hmm. Is this something that will continue to grow? And, and and in fact, might social media become something that is of value to older people? It already was something that was of value to older people, those who used it. Um, so, you know, we've had a lot of concern over the years, especially about young people, adolescents. And the good news is a little aside is that social media is not actually as bad for adolescents as we have been sort of led to believe, as some of the early work showed. But the really important thing to say is that for older people, it has always been pretty much a win-win when it comes, especially when it comes to connection and um, people who, older people who had bigger social networks online tended to have bigger social networks offline. Mm -hmm. And they reported feeling more support from family and friends. They felt, you know, more connected in, in almost every way that you would want to be. And so that was true even before um, the pandemic. I think, yes, there's, it has to be true that, that these new skills and, and, technologies that people have become much more comfortable with, you know, they do serve a purpose. The, the problem is when they're the only thing that mm. you can do, then that's, you know, that's limited, but it's much better than nothing. So I do think that we won't go back entirely. On the other hand, we really miss being with people in person. And, and there are biological and evolutionary reasons why that is so. And so what I hope we do is combine the best that technology has to give us with, you know, the core importance of seeing people in person and developing those relationships. So, so take us all the way back, if you will, because you mentioned the biological and evolutionary uh, basis uh, for friendship and in our socialization. Now, why are we hardwired to, mm -hmm. to not to not just thrive on it, but actually need it? Well, it's it's so interesting. So, you know, for a very long time, we we always have thought, I mean, all the way back to Aristotle, Socrates, you know, people celebrated friendship. They saw it as a positive, something that made us feel good and that was pleasurable. So we've known that for a really long time. But we thought that it was cultural, that it was primarily a kind of happy byproduct of of other kinds of relationships and, and communities. And um, And that turns out not to be right. And so in, let's call it the last 20 years, especially, 
two major headlines have have emerged from the science of this. One is that friendship turns out to be about as important as diet and exercise for your health. You you mentioned earlier the that it compares with smoking. Well, so the loss of it or the lack of social, of friendship and and loneliness or social isolation is really bad for you. What we often don't talk about is what that means that how how much that means friendship is good for you, mm. right? Right. It makes you live longer. It helps your cardiovascular system, your immune function, your stress response, your sleep, your your risk of dementia and depression go down. All kinds of things are better physically because of having strong friendships and being socially integrated. Now, the other part of the story is the evolutionary part of the story, which is what you were really asking about. They're, they're connected. But it turns out that there are real evolutionary advantages to being good at making and maintaining friends. And we see this in people, but where it has been most striking and has sort of showed us how much more important friendship is than we thought is that we see it in other species too. And so that's where mm. when you start to see that, you say, wait a minute, <laughs> there's something more going on. This ha this can't be a product of human language. If, you know, rhesus macaques can do it, um, if baboons do it. And, you know, some of the things we thought were true. So like in people, once we started to make those connections to the health and the biology that I just mentioned, we thought, well, okay, of course, you're healthier if you have friends, because maybe your friend is available to drive you to the hospital should you need to go. And that is true. That's called social support. And that really does matter. Um, but baboons who have better friends and not necessarily relatives <laughs> are also they do better if they they are healthier and they live longer if they have more strong quality bonds and baboons cannot drive each other to the hospital so so that tells you that there's something fundamental going on and it it really gets all the way back um to i mean what the purpose of it is Often it's about predation. It's about protecting us from the lions coming across the plain in Africa. And now, obviously, the lions look different today in the United States of America <laughs> in 2020. But boy, oh boy, do we have lions um, coming at us. And so friends are there to pr help protect you in the bad times. You know, you work to build up the relationship. That's part of why it's so rewarding is because it keeps you it, it, literally in your brain, the neurotransmitters are making you feel good when you have a good time with your friend. And that encourages you to just keep building the relationship and keep coming back. And then when you really need them, those friends are there. We are speaking uh, with Lydia Denworth, who has written a fascinating book. She's a science uh, journalist. Her book is called Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. And, you know, Lydia, we like, um, you know, I, I'll say brag, but uh, you know, <laughs> uh, as a media company, we, we say often we've probably interviewed more active centenarians than almost any media company in the world. Uh, and, and yes, there is a genetic component, but the good news is it is a very diverse group, more women than men but are urban, rural, rich, poor, uh, you know, black, white, which leads us to believe that almost anybody can aspire to an active longevity. But, mm -hmm. but, but if there is a one com a common mm -hmm. denominator, it is uh, friendship. It, it's strong mm -hmm. social interaction helps get people, uh, 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 helps people to live a longer life. But that's kind of the challenge as we age, because we tend to kind of withdraw and, uh, and lose our friendships. Um, uh, how can we stay connected as we get older? What, 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 how are you using what you've learned to try to make a difference? 
Well, one of the things I think is interesting and important to point out is that we often think of older people as losing their friendships or as um, being lonelier. And it is true that older people's social circles tend to contract as, uh, but for many people that is intentional and what they are doing is focusing in on the people they really enjoy and care about and who sustain them. And that actually is a big part of what the message of friend of the science of friendship is all about is that the quality matters more than quantity. It's not that quantity is unimportant and we can have a whole conversation about what you get by having diversity and, and, you know, more casual relationships. But if you have to pick, you need even just one really, really solid quality bond. And that is where the you get the bang for your buck for your health and your longevity. And so, you know, some older people are actually doing that. Maybe some are doing it intentionally and some sort of instinctively without really realizing what they're doing. So, it's not a knock just to say that your social circle is smaller automatically. So that's mm. an important point. But it is also true that there are a lot of older people who do lose, you know, a lot of the people close to them. Maybe they lose their spouse of many years. Their friends pass away. One of the things I worry about is people moving when they are older without taking friendship into account. Like maybe you've decided that you want to go live in Florida, but you don't actually know anybody in Florida, mm. or you want to go live near your daughter, but you know, she lives in a place where there are no other people that are more like your age or with your same interests. And, and so there are great advantages to living near your daughter, but there might also be costs. And I don't know if we focus enough on that. Um, and then the other thing I'll just say is that in adulthood in general, making new friends feels hard. Part of that is because it is just a different, our, our lives get full of other things. And, you know, when we're very young in high school and college, everybody around us is our same age. And we have just this, this so much time to spend with people and time is a necessary thing. As you get older, you have less time. Fortunately, towards the end of life, you start to have more time for friends and socializing, but you also have to have this other piece, which is a willingness to make yourself vulnerable, mm. to put yourself out there a little bit. And I think what I hope people understand is how much benefit there is to be gained by working to make new friends and to, you know, looking for people who share your interests is mm. one of the best ways. That sounds very simplistic, but it's really true that, you know, if you move to a new place and you're interested in hiking, look for the other people who are going out hiking or, you know, bird watching or whatever it is. A willingness to make ourselves vulnerable. It isn't easy, but Lydia Denworth makes the point that it sure is worth it. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation. How the right friends can affect your health and your longevity. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Turning 64 is a time to celebrate as new adventures and opportunities await. And 64 is also a time to think about Medicare. Growing Boulder created a guide that helps explain it all. Available for free at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. 
Growing Boulder TV is back for its seventh season on public television, and it is bolder than ever. All new episodes begin airing weekly on WUCF Saturday mornings at 9.30, beginning May 8th. You're listening to Growing Boulder, and we are right in the middle of a great conversation on friendships and the science behind them, why you need friends, why they need to be the right friends, and the powerful effect they have on the way we age, just as much as things like diet and exercise do. Here's Mark with more with Lydia Denworth. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, and, and, and help us understand what a friend is by your definition, because, you know, I I think we've, there's been a lot written about the power of positivity, a lot less written about the power of negativity. And I think it turns out that negative begets negative far more than positive begets positive. (laughs) And as we age, if we have the wrong kind of friends, not only is it not good for us, it can be devastating. So how, Lydia, do you define a, a, a friend? So I have a very specific definition, which comes from all of the science, specifically from the biologists, but you see the same themes when anthropologists are looking, child development, developmental psychologists are looking at it. For me, a really good friend is, has, must have three things, or the friendship must have three qualities. It's long lasting and stable. It's positive. So it makes you feel good. And it's cooperative. There's a reciprocity, there's a helpfulness involved. Um, And you can have a whole lot of other things on top of that. We often think of trust and loyalty and, and, you know, companionship, all good. But you've got to have those three things. And, um, and, and And that's what, you know, I mentioned the baboons earlier. I mean, this comes from that. So the relationships that are giving those baboons their longevity and their health share those kinds of traits. Um, So what does that translate into in terms of what it means to be a good friend? I think it means being a steady, reliable presence in people's life. It means making them feel good. I mean, think about when was the last time you called up a friend and said, you know, gosh, I appreciate you. And here's why. (laughs) Here's what I love about you. You know, we don't always make that effort. Um, and then the and then the last part is the helpfulness, the cooperative, the reciprocity. It's really important that relationships are not too lopsided. Mm-hmm. Friendships are not too lopsided. They might be it might be that one person is going through a whole lot of stuff one year and you know it's their turn sort of to get most of the support. But somewhere in time that has to come out in the wash and, and work the other way. And I'm not saying that there's a in the before times, before the pandemic, we you know, it's not that I had you for dinner and now you have to have me for dinner or, you know, I, I did this, you did that. It's not a tit for tat, but overall, we know when there's a relationship that feels like one person does all the talking and the other does all the listening or, you know, whatever it is. So those three elements, the stable, positive, cooperative friendship really has a lot to tell us about how to interact. The other thing I'll just say about this that I think is interesting is that while there are big differences between friendships traditionally and your romantic partner and your biological mm. relatives, I think this science of friendship and this definition blurs the lines because it tells us this is the fundamental template for a quality relationship. And it's what we should be striving for in a lot of our relationships and in not just our friendships. And when relationships don't give us that, we should be thinking about 
that and whether we need those people in our life. One more question, if I may. Uh, you know, give give us a a, a final takeaway, a broad strokes takeaway. Is there a moral uh, to your story? Is there a life lesson that you have learned in general that you'd like to share with everybody? Well, um, I mean, I feel like I've already said it, but I'll repeat it. It's that it really is that we need to prioritize our relationships. That people are a good use of your time, and um, but that you know we should keep an eye on quality and that hanging out with, with the people that you really love and who sustain you is good for your health. And it will never be a waste of time. Well, it's something that should rise to the same level mm. as booking in your exercise and your work and your other things. You should make sure it's part of your life. And that's a wonderful thing actually to, to really embrace and, and, acknowledge and then live your life accordingly. Plan your day accordingly. That's my advice. <laughs> well said. It was worth saying again. In fact, it is worth writing a book about. And, uh, <laughs> and in fact, she has. And folks, if you'd like to read it, it's called Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. It is a provocative, profound testament about uh, the connection between social relationships and our overall health. Uh, find out more about Lydia at Lydia Denworth. That's L-Y-D-I-A-D-E-N-W-R-T-H dot com. Lydia, it's been a whole lot of fun. I, I hope we get to hang out again one day. Yep. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Be well. Up next, Mark talked about her before. She's the daughter of one U.S. president and the sister of another. So what is it she wants us to know about how to live a better life? This is Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by... Protected income from an annuity can help cover essential expenses in retirement, giving you the freedom to live the life you want. The right financial professional can show you how. Learn more at protectedincome.org. And by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Don't you hate it when somebody says to you, age is all in your mind? Oh yeah? Then why did my knees hurt? And my back? And where did I put those darn keys? Yeah, there are changes that do come with age, but it only becomes a problem when we start to use age as an excuse, says aging expert Annette Kelly. Yeah, a good bit of that, though, is actually the ageism that we um, dump on ourselves as older adults. You know, ageism is rampant. We all hear this. But it's also part of who we are as elders, you know, like um, we're protecting ourselves sometimes with our, you know, caving to, well, you know, I'm 78. You know, I say it like, I'm 78, not like, well, I'm 78, you know. I think it's awesome. So you, the way you say it, yeah. 78 is it's an like, age, not an excuse. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's full of possibility and strength, even though 
there may be and are changes in me from my younger self to my older self. Definitely. My tennis is terrible. <laughs> but the last thing you should do is stop playing because <laughs> right. it's terrible. Right. Find somebody else terrible yeah. and you'll have a blast. <laughs> right. Or a wall. But because what happens with isolation in and of itself is it causes a decrease in socialization. Oh, and we're seeing yeah. that socialization is more important maybe as we age than it oh is gosh, at any other. It really is because it's really the mirror you know, through which you, you sort of get a sense of yourself. Without that back and forth, um, it's, it's all, you know, focused inward. And socialization, I think, also provides opportunities that we don't expect. There is more to the conversation. Find insights, resources, and useful information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Well, we've got another special interview for you now. Actually, two guests, Doro Bush-Cook and Tricia Riley-Cook, who happen to be one of the most powerful sister-in-law teams in the entire country. They're wellness advocates, kindness champions, and they're the founders of the Co-Mindfulness Movement. Tricia is a nutritionist and a health counselor, and Doro is a New York Times bestselling author. And if the name Doro Bush sounds familiar, well, there's a pretty good reason for that. I'm the sister of the 43rd president and the daughter of the 41st president. And I spent most of my life um, on the campaign trail um, working for um, my dad early in the early 60s when he ran for the Senate originally and then the Congress and then, um, you know, president um, and he became vice president and then ran for president again and won. And then my brother, of course, had um, was governor of Texas and then um, and then president. And then I have another brother who ran for governor and I have a nephew <laughs> ran for things, two nephews and on and on. And so a lot of my life was on the campaign trail. And it was honestly very stressful because. Um, for me, politics was personal. So when I would hear the media say something or um, that I knew wasn't true, I my mind would go crazy. And I would, you know, I knew at some point I had to find something to deal with the stress. And um, so that's where the mindfulness came in. And um, so for the last, I think, 20 some years of my life, I've um, been an advocate for um, mindfulness and meditation, and I've studied it, and I've guided people through it, and mainly because I know it's helped me so much. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about co-mindfulness, because I think most of us know a little bit about mindfulness, you know, paying mm -hmm. attention to details, being in the moment. What is co-mindfulness, and why are you guys so amped up on the, the power and importance of it? So co-mindfulness is something that Dora and I sort of in the past two years, maybe three years, started to formulate this idea of what would it mean to be co-mindful co with someone else, like in relationships, because what's happening right now in the wellness movement, and Dora and I have been part of the wellness movement now probably over 20 years, doing all kinds of education seminars, conferences, podcasts, and that sort of thing. And, and one of the things that we didn't recognize 
as important to your wellness is relationships and your connection to other people. We always knew it was important, but we didn't know the science behind it. And sort of, as you were saying earlier with mindfulness, I think some people used to just think it was new agey, something, you know, probably worked, but now there's tons and tons of science that says, it, this is important. It's really important for our mental well-being and for our physical well-being. So co-mindfulness came as a result of Doro and I talking to so many people and so many conversations, trying to figure out how do you become um, healthier in relationships because what we've learned is that relationships now, good relationships, help us live longer and healthier lives. And Doro and I will go on to tell you about those different sciences, but it's clear. It's really, really important to have healthy relationships. And how do you do that? You do that through compassion. So that's what co-mindfulness is. So it's being in the present moment with another person with the idea that I'm here present for you. What you said earlier, Mark, when you opened up, what were those comments that you said that we listen deeply when you opened us mm-hmm. up what were they again uh we listen deeply without making any judgment but yeah. feel free to ask questions and and process the information yes yeah so that's being pretty pretty mindful and in our <laughs> in our definition being very co-mindful because we're in this together so i think that's that's doro are you bad doro are you yes i'm bad <laughs> <laughs> yes so what else would you say about co-mindfulness well i mean one of the things we can do is sort of take you through our discovery about co-mindfulness and how we discovered um the importance of relationships. So Tricia, why don't you start by talking about how important relationships really are? Okay. So like I said, you know, we've been doing this kind of work in forever and loving talking about the importance of drinking water because you guys, everybody should be drinking water. And that's the way that we would talk to people about bio-individuality because each one of us are different, right? So for someone to say you need eight glasses of water is kind of silly because if one person runs a marathon today, they're going to need a little bit more than eight glasses of water. So identifying what you need. So we talk all about that and what you need to eat and the importance of exercising. You know, sitting is the new smoking, right? Everybody's heard that. We need to move because our bodies are made to move. But what we didn't talk about because there wasn't the science behind it was, again, what the role is of relationships and, and how that is sort of the big news right now. And that as wellness advocates, we feel, feel that it's important that we talk about that. So that's really how co-mindfulness and the understanding of relationships became part of our conversations when we talk about health and wellness. Right. And we discovered um, a Harvard study, which um, showed us that our social ties are a stronger predictor of how long we live and how happy we are than even our social class, um, IQ, or even our genes. And one of the incredible um, findings from the study is that how happy we are in our relationships at age 50 is a better predictor of our health at 80 years of Mm -hmm. age than our cholesterol levels are. And um, what we what we found in that study to really be important is the quality of our relationships, not the quantity, um, is what keeps us healthy and living longer. Yeah, and it wasn't, and as we said a couple of years ago when we started hearing about these different studies and these different behavioral scientists and sociologists and psychologists all looking at this, we were like, 
blown away. And another person that is pretty awesome, she's a psychologist out at um, Brigham Young. She looked at studies involving over 300,000 people, and she found that people with strong social ties were not 20% likely to live longer, not 30% likely to live longer, but actually 50% longer. And so it's just, it was just unbelievable what they were finding. And her name is Julianne Holt Lundstad. She's awesome. The, the real epidemic um, that's underlying all of these diseases in our country is loneliness. And so, Tricia, talk, talk a little bit about loneliness. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, everybody, we're, we're in this pandemic together, right? So there's some people being really affected by loneliness. And, and the sad news is it was an epidemic before this pandemic that we were having a loneliness and epidemic num- numbers and Cigna insurance company, who's been one of our great partners, partners, great partners. We've done a lot of work with them in the past, did a recent study. It was actually in 2018 and then again in 2020. And they found that three out of five Americans report feeling lonely on a regular basis. And what was extremely surprising and kind of shocking to us was that the generations that are most digitally connected are the ones who describe feeling the most isolated and alone. So that would be our younger generation. They're reporting that they are alone and feeling isolated, which is so scary. And one explanation Cigna came up with, and we agree, um, for America's loneliness epidemic is that it's a lack of social support and infrequent, meaningful social interactions that's making people feel really, really lonely. And not only feeling it, but like living it. Well, you know, this is one of the things. And by the way, folks, if you're just joining us, we are talking with uh, Doro Bush Cook and Tricia Riley Cook, who are sisters in law uh, <laughs> and, and really sisters uh, in, in compassion and empathy and mindfulness. Uh, they have a consulting business in Washington, D.C. They put on multiple events uh, for people like you and me. And I'll share some of that information with you. But, uh, you know, Tricia, I, I hear totally what you say that a lot of these young people who only communicate digitally are, are still lonely. The other side of that is what we're doing today, uh, you know, w- would not right. be possible if it weren't for technology. And uh, and kudos for all of you out there who are here yes. today and who come to the speaker series on a regular basis, because, uh, you know, it's a great way to, to stay in touch and stay connected and, and, and learn some great information. And, you know, you're, you're so right about the, this pandemic and the epidemic of loneliness. And, you know, there's been multiple surveys that have come out you know, that, that say the loneliness now leads to depression and stress-related anxiety. And, mm-hmm. you know, to me, it uh, it all points back to you two, uh, not the cause of it, but but, but the solution <laughs> to it. You know, it, it's it's mindfulness to, to deal with the stress and the anxiety. Mm-hmm. It it's really so is. true. There's so many things about loneliness that we don't really know. And one of them is um, how it affects our physical health. Um, you know, it's important for people to understand that um, loneliness isn't just emotionally, emotionally painful. It's also quite dangerous to our health. Um, there have been, you know, the same person that Tricia was talking about, um, the psychologist who did the um, other study that she mentioned, did a meta-analysis of 70 studies representing millions, I think something like 3.4 million people. And she found that loneliness increases the chance of a premature death, at least as much as obesity, smoking, and alcoholism does. So, 
all these studies are pointing to um, real problems, including um, it increases our stress hormone cortisol, which is associated with higher blood pressure and decreased resistance to infection and, um, you know, um, increased risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer and da, 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 da. No, exactly right. And and what Julianne sounded too is that this loneliness, feeling of loneliness um, is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes yeah. a day. We thought that was pretty crazy. And not, not only is it uh, all about that, but it's also about the cognitive functioning. Mm-hmm. So you're finding now that um, loneliness is actually really affecting the brains and that it's actually one of the biggest causes of Alzheimer's disease. And there's many studies that back that up. So, so again, we're just saying, wow, this is, this is a problem. It's, it's, it's a real problem. It's physical too. It's mental And, and the physical pain. We thought this was pretty interesting. We now know that the same neural networks in our brain that process physical pain are also used to process social rejection. So what's so amazing is that Tylenol, um, which is common, we're all taking Tylenol, actually removes these effects on our brain caused by feeling socially isolated. So just like we take Tylenol to get rid of a headache, we can also take Tylenol to relieve the anguish we experience from social separation and loss. So really what that shows us, as far as our brains are concerned, social pain is real physical pain. Yeah. We wow. thought that was incredible. We we just thought that was incredible. And and some of the work that we do, we work with many seniors and, and it was true. A lot of a lot of seniors were taking Tylenol and finding that they were getting relief for an unnamed, um, uncomfortable feeling they had. Yeah. But to Mark, to your point, you asked us, um, you know, what's the good news? How do yeah. we overcome loneliness? Right. And and Tricia mentioned it earlier. Um, and it's really the practice of compassion. That's the best medicine for mm-hmm. overcoming loneliness. Um, and the common misconception um, here is that people have about practicing compassion is that giving to others is a selfless act. But mm-hmm. a lot of the studies are showing that giving to others is actually a highly pleasurable act. I mean, it makes us feel good, right? And it's really, it's really is biologically better to give than to receive. And extending compassion to others is the best way to invest in our own health and happiness. So we have to shift our frame of mind and we need to cultivate a more um, generous and giving attitude toward other people, knowing that the people that are going to benefit the most from this is us. Wellness, co-mindfulness, healthy relationships, and compassion, they believe we all want the same thing. We all want to be accepted, respected, and of course, happy. A great takeaway from a fascinating conversation. Another is how important the quality of those relationships really are, and that how happy we are at age 50 is a better indication of how healthy we'll be at 80 than even our cholesterol levels. We may think we can go it alone. Uh, We may even think that we're doing pretty well at it, but there is scientific evidence that we need to be out there. We need to be making new friends, nurturing our relationships, and being social to really maximize our joy and our health as we age. A lot to think about from Doro Bush Cook and Tricia Riley Cook. 
Well, coming up, it's time to find out what's on Mark's mind. It's going to be pretty interesting. You're listening to Growing Bold. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... There's a place in Florida home to wide open spaces, uncrowded white sand beaches, sparkling Gulf of Mexico waters, and endless natural surroundings. Florida's Paradise Coast, Naples' Marco Island, and the Everglades. The perfect reward for that long overdue getaway. Safe and spectacular. Farm-to-table restaurants, luxurious shopping, arts and culture, golf, fishing, and more. When only paradise will do, it's paradisecoast.com. Hi, this is Amy Sweezy from Growing Boulder. When it comes to retirement planning, women face a variety of unique challenges that make a difficult process even more problematic. Take a recent study by the National Institute on Retirement Security, which found that women 65 or older are 80% more likely to be impoverished than a man of the same age. There are many reasons women start out behind the eight ball when it comes to retirement planning, but there are also steps we can take to help secure our financial futures. Here are some things to consider. Women tend to live longer than men, but accumulate less in retirement savings because we earn less during our careers. We're also more likely to interrupt our careers for family caregiving responsibilities. Only 14% of women frequently discuss saving, investing, and retirement planning with family and close friends, according to a recent survey. Women should consider working with a financial professional who can help establish a real financial plan for retirement. And because we live longer, it's even more important for women to discuss including a source of protected income from an annuity to help grow and protect our retirement. The Alliance for Lifetime Income is a nonprofit educational organization that believes no American should have to face the prospect of running out of money in retirement. For more information, protectedincome.org. They provide easy-to-understand information, tools, and guides, also stories of real-life Americans who found ways to protect their retirement and have the freedom to live life boldly. For Growing Bolder... I'm Amy Sweezy. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. I'm Bill Schaefer with the great Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. Just what kind of a person are you? Dr. Bill Thomas is pretty sure he knows. He's a Harvard-trained geriatrician renowned for deinstitutionalizing nursing homes all across the world. And from his experience, he believes that as we age, there are only two kinds of people, those who look backwards and those who look forward. So which one are you? It's important because your attitude can make a bigger difference in your life than your genetics. I often saw it in my office I, almost two kinds of older people. There were those who were looking backward and those who were looking forward. And the ones who were looking backward were pining for something. They're struggling to feel like they were holding on to something and ultimately failing because time is a harsh mistress. The ones who were looking forward were asking, wondering, exploring trying to figure out what comes next. And uh, they were always so much more interesting. I can't say that they were more healthy or more physically fit. They were just more interesting people. 
And uh, I learned over the course of my career that the health status is probably second tier or third tier in terms of life satisfaction. These other things really towered above how many meds you were on or how achy your knees were. Fascinating insight from a really interesting guy from Growing Boulder's Launchpad to What's Next. He is Dr. Bill Thomas. And yeah, looking forward is important, and so is curiosity, the desire to analyze, to think, to ask questions. And that leads me to asking you, Mark Middleton, (laughs) what's on your mind today? Uh, You know what, Bill, what, what truthfully is on my mind is this series that we're we're producing. Bill and I have been all over the state recently. We're doing a series for five local television markets, Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, South Florida, uh, and Southwest Florida, Naples and Fort Myers. It's called Ordinary People Living Extraordinary Lives. And uh, it's probably in your town if you're listening to Growing Boulder Radio, because uh, we're, we're meeting people from these markets. And Someone suggested we go talk to a guy uh, named Gil Walton, 95 years old. It was on a Saturday morning. Uh, Nobody really wanted to go, to be honest with you, because he was going fishing and we would have to be there early. But there was just something that compelled me to go. And I got up at 4.30 and drove to Homosassa and did an interview and took a boat ride with 95-year-old Gil Walton. And I just had a great, great time. Uh, He's a World War II veteran, a guy that was born in Live Oak, Florida, Uh, And, uh, you know, a true Florida native, beloved by his family, who went out of their way to give him this gift as regularly as they could, uh, this gift of what he loved most, which is to be with his family and to go fishing. And he's on my mind today, Bill, because I learned just last week that he passed away. And this was the final time he was ever out on a boat. And uh, it just made me think that, you know, we really have to appreciate, take advantage, acknowledge, and thank all of our elders, but most especially the World War II veterans, of which Gil was one. And, and folks, if you don't know this, there were 16 million men and women who participated, who fought, who served in World War II. Uh, there's now only 300,000 of them left, and they're dying at the rate of about 245 a day. And to put this in perspective, there were a million alive in 2015, and now just 300,000 uh, six years later. So if you know someone that's a World War II vet, uh, thank them, say hello to them, and maybe even take them fishing. How many times, Mark, do we run across this? Oh, you're going to go talk to a 95-year-old? I'm sorry. And people think that's a punish assignment or that that's going to be a terrible time. And how many times do we come back saying, wow, how cool was that? What are most of us missing? Uh, You know, we're we're, we're we're missing um, what's possible for all of us. And and 90 people in their 90s, nonagenarians, are really a great example because, you know, we just learned recently that life expectancy of this country has gone down. It's now 75 years old for males and 80 for women. People who make it into their 90s uh, have lived longer because they haven't had a lot of disease and disability in their lives. So there are a lot of 90-year-olds that are living really active, engaged life. And, and what we're missing is, is the realization that that can be us. But it's passion. It's passion and families that get us to that point. It's his family and his passion for fishing that, that gave Gil that quality of life. You talk about it all the time, and it's the uh, it, we've been beaten into our heads that this image of anybody who's old is that they're grouchy, grumpy, they've got nothing to say, they're boring. And really, folks, there's nothing further from the truth. Think about your own parents and grandparents. These are people that have huge hearts, that want to pass along wisdom, information, that have something to say, but are never asked. 
You know, one of the things I've learned, because everybody says when they talk to an older person, what's it like to, what do you feel like to be that age? And everybody always says, I still feel like I'm 20 or 30. I don't think it makes a difference if you're 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. Inside, you still feel like you're young. It's still the same kinds of things that that give you joy. And folks, if you want to see some of these in reality, what is it like to hear somebody tell a story as they get older, go to growingbolder.com and and just search the website. Click almost anywhere. You'll find stories on people of all ages. But the ones that we remember the best are the ones of people that have lived full lives and are happy to give advice or happy to tell us about it so we can do the same. Don't forget, that's growingbolder.com. For Mark, I'm Bill. See you here next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my map. Said I, proud me, heated brow. Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. Half right prejudice leap for rip down all hate I scream. Lies that life is black and white. Spoke from my skull, I dream. Musketeers, foundation deep somehow. Oh, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. In a soldier's stand.